Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership, an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Angular Insights. We're very excited for for you to be joining us. We have a very special session today with David Peterson from Airtable, who's going to be talking about strategies for bottom-up B2B growth and no-code tools. And with that, I will pass it over to Gil. David, thank you so much for doing this. I have to be here. And we've, we've had a number of conversations over the past few months, and it's a thrill to be able to share those more broadly. Let me maybe start by introducing you uh, just for the audience. So David is an American. I think I actually never confirmed that. Are you actually an American? I, uh, yeah, I am an American. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, you're not a Canadian or some other thing like that. I, yeah. No. yeah. I get into all kinds of trouble with that. Uh, so David's an American based in London, um, employee number like 15, 16 at Airtable. So I got yeah. Runs for global partnerships out of London. Prior to Airtable, actually worked at a VC called Founders Collective, which is a New York-based VC, which we've had a ton of respect for. I have an old historical co-investment with them that it didn't work out all that well, but an amazing fund. And actually worked as a founder, bootstrapped the company before I went into venture. So I think can speak from the perspective of both an operator and a VC and an early stage founder. I should also say that David sort of generously agreed not to plug Airtable. I should say that we as a fund really built our entire operational backend on Airtable. Um, so we do all of our deal flow on Airtable, all of our platform management on Airtable. I track a big part of the LP relationships on Airtable, though I have CRMs as well. Even the set of forum conversations that we have, we track on Airtable. Uh, just before we started, we were showing David how we use it to track that. So it's really become the backend. And I've been a little pu- publicly vocal about how I pine for Airtable to add features, but that's just a, a function of how dependent we are on it and how empowering it's been. So thank you and the rest of the Airtable team for an, allowing us to build these kind of tools. I don't think we could have done it otherwise. Yeah. Um, we love the feedback to keep it coming. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, let's just get started and please take us through your talk. Awesome. Very excited. Thanks for having me. So the topic for the conversation today was strategies for bottoms up B2B growth. And I'm going to include some no-code stuff in this too, because one, your table itself has fallen into this new nascent uh, no-code category. And also we use a lot of these no-code tools to drive a lot of these, a lot of these strategies back in the day. So this will both be some kind of lessons learned about the first, my first few years at Airtable and also some of the systems that we built to enable some of these approaches. When Gil and Anne asked me to join here, they asked, asked me to think about like, what was the bottoms up growth approach for Airtable back in the day? Do we have any lessons learned from that experience? One thing that I'll caveat all of this with is I think it's so easy to overlearn the lessons of your own experience and essentially create frameworks that are so specific that they're only relevant to your company and nobody else can really learn from that experience, right? Like it's just too specific. So in that regard, take this all with a grain of salt. This is what we learned, but I think like, let's talk about the nuance and how these things might be relevant for your company, might not be relevant. You know, this should just be one input in how you're thinking about things. Here are my like top five thoughts on bottoms up B2B growth 
And I have a few talking points for each of these. So I'll kind of run through them and then we can go through them one by one. I think the first is it's hard to kind of tack on a bottoms-up growth strategy. Then second, what we did at Airtable at least is these are, in particular, these lessons are really relevant for a company that's horizontal, like the product is horizontal, like Airtable. And we really focused on finding use cases for the horizontal product and then developing go-to-market strategies for specific use cases. That enabled us as a horizontal product to then go to market in a lot of specific ways and build up momentum kind of across the board by going deep on different use cases. So I'll kind of walk through how we thought about that. Again, I think that's probably most relevant if you're a horizontal product, but there's elements of it that you can bring to a vertical product company as well. And then something we're doing more recently, which I want to just touch on, is how do you thoughtfully combine this product-led growth with high-touch human intervention and sales? And that's something that we're thinking about a lot now. And again, I'll share some lessons learned from other folks on the team that are really, really focused on this. So I'm going to jump in. So first things first, I do think that you really need to build the product with bottoms-up growth in mind if bottoms-up growth is your growth strategy. There's a few reasons for that. And I would separate it out by whether your product is horizontal or vertical. So if your product is horizontal, like Airtable, should optimize for self-serve as you build a product. And there's a few reasons for this. The main one, though, is you don't necessarily know the best use cases for your product if it's horizontal. You're not sure what the killer use cases are going to be, what those killer segments are going to be. So let the self-serve users find them for you. Like they, they are going to, uh, they're going to innovate more than you ever could. So get them into the product, let them start building. They'll find amazing use cases for you. And then you can leverage those and turn those into big growth strategies. So that's one big reason that I think self-serve is so critical for horizontal products. Something that the product engineering team at Airtable did incredibly well was think about how to make the product valuable for individuals, but ultimately collaborative, ultimately team-oriented. And that really kind of drives this natural expansion where the individuals fall in love with the product, become evangelists, much like our friend Gil here, total Airtable evangelists. But because the use of the product is so fundamentally collaborative, that's where really that's what really sings. There's kind of this natural drive towards expansion. And then when thinking about pricing, look, you can price the product so many different ways. There's so many different, so many different approaches. And so I think something we've learned is that pricing is going to be, pricing is an ongoing experiment. Like our pricing today is not the pricing that we'll have years from now. And you will probably be experimenting with it for the rest of the company's life. The thing that we really want to think about with pricing is can you orient the pricing such that kick off that viral adoption expansion process? So that might be freemium. That might be a long enough trial. Users have time to activate, whatever that looks like for your product. Or maybe it's free for up to five users or free for up to 10 users, right? There's so many different angles, but I think what you're really trying to capture is lowering the barrier to users kicking off that process. I think if your product is vertical, you can go either way. And I threw a few like motivating questions in there, um, thinking about how your users like to buy software, whether or not your users need a lot of help to be successful, or if self-service is even possible. Those are some things to think about. 
as you're deciding like how to design the product and whether bottoms up growth is the right approach for your particular product as well. Next thing is now you have some users coming in and this is really, again, speaking to our, the experience we, we had at Airtable, the thing that we really thought about was how do you identify use cases that could be good vectors for growth, could be good angles that you could then build a lot of momentum off of. And the way we really thought about this was, I mean, we basically built a team and this is my team two and a half or three and a half years ago now. Uh, a team of folks who had varied experience. There were people who were consultants, people who were product marketers, people who were like operations people, but they were all kind of entrepreneurial. And we thought of ourselves essentially as like user anthropologists. And our goal was to talk to as many users as possible and try to uncover use cases. The ultimate goal, which we'll get to, was to like find these diamond use cases in the rough that they go to market with. But the, the way we started it was, we're just going to talk to as many users as possible and try to make them successful. And that, and literally early on, we were willing to have as many conversations with the user as it would take to make them successful. As many touch points as mattered. We would get on the phone with them. We would build out Airtable bases for them, do whatever we needed to do to make them successful, to try to understand the specifics of that particular user in their specific industry, their particular function? Can we understand who these people are and understand if Airtable is a good solution for them or not? The goal really was to identify opportunities that were like coherent enough that we could build a go-to-market strategy around them. And there were a few kind of tests that we, that like and deliverables that we had to decide if this use case was coherent enough. And like two, two example deliverables that I thought were really useful one is we would, you know, after having a bunch of conversations with users with a particular use case, if we're starting to become convinced that this could be a really good use case for us and we wanted to build a go-to-market strategy for it, first thing we would do is do one of those classic Amazon working backwards press releases where it's like, what is the press release that you would write upon the launch of this use case? What would that look like? And does it feel compelling? Usually just the process of trying to do that would nix a lot of the ideas that we had because it just, you realize that you didn't actually understand it, understand it well enough. And then we would also think about writing, basically like we, we called it a product positioning doc. It's almost like the go-to-market version of a product requirements document. Who are the users? What are their motivations? What problems were they trying to solve? How might you acquire them? I mean, it was basically like a mini business plan for this new use case uh, that we would try to put together and then if we all kind of were on board with it, then we would start experimenting. This process of talking and onboarding so many users was really time consuming. We probably had hundreds, thousands of calls over the course of a year. And this is not a sales team. So we weren't on the phone all day and it wasn't a sales process, right? So we couldn't really use like a classic sales CRM. So we kind of built our own system to manage this whole process. And this is where some of like the no code uh, system design stuff comes into play. So I wanted to show a version of how you could build this and how we did it. So this isn't exactly how we did it, but it might get some juices flowing for you guys on, on how you could design something similar today. I think this is basically how I would do it today if I were trying to design this again. So we, we were tracking new users uh, in Intercom and we were enriching all of our users with Clearbit data as well. So basically, the way this system worked is 
whenever a new user came in that was enriched and had employee count of greater than 100, greater than 250, right? We kind of figured out some general metrics to zoom in on higher quality users. Whenever a new user joined to who hit those metrics, we set up a zap that would ping a Slack channel. And then in that Slack channel, we would see all of these new users. Whenever they signed up, they would hit this channel. And we would basically spend the whole day tracking this Slack channel. It was kind of always out in the background. We set up notifications so we could see it. And if we saw a user come in that we thought was interesting, that we thought was worth talking to, what we would do is do an emoji reaction to that Slack message. So that's the little check checkbox there. So we just emoji react to that Slack message. That would kick off a zap that would tag that user in intercom. So they would get added to an already created email campaign in intercom, intercom, which would ask them if they were interested in a one-on-one onboarding session with the person who did that emoji reaction. And it would also add that person and that person's information to an Airtable base where we were keeping track of every single user conversation we were having. So it was that Airtable base was kind of like a quasi CRM where we were tracking all this information. And then Intercom, we were using both to track our users and as our email uh, system. So this let us track hundreds, thousands of conversations uh, in a really, really lightweight way. And then in that Airtable base, we were keeping track of like, what industry is this person from? What function? You know, all of this other metadata as we were trying to understand what are the atomic use cases here that really matter? Is this a good fit or not? Do we want to turn this into a go-to-market strategy or not? So that's kind of high level how it worked. Hopefully that's giving you a better idea of what it looks like day to day. One other thing that we, we thought a lot about is how do we think about like the desirability of a use case? Like there are lots of uses for all of our products. Like you could use it for a ton of different things. That doesn't necessarily mean you want to build a whole go-to-market strategy and invest that time and those resources to go after it. We thought about desirability across four different categories, four different buckets. There's probably examples of these that that are much more relevant for your companies. But we thought a lot about, um, you know, different user characteristics, company characteristics, kind of standard. Is this high growth? Are there lots of employees? Overall market characteristics, like is the market itself growing? And specific use case characteristics as well. These are pretty pretty generic. We have a much, much longer list, but just give me a sense of how we started to think about it. And we kind of judged every use case across these different buckets to try to normalize each of our individual, like anthropological user research experience, normalize it a little bit so we could come up with essentially a score. Like, do we think this use case is, is valuable or not and, and worth going after? Now we've had like a hundred calls. We've identified a use case that we think is interesting. We've written up some documentation that shows them really understand who these people are, the users are, we understand this workflow. We've put it into this framework and we said like, yes, this makes sense. Like on the fundamentals, this is a good, it's a good fit for what we think makes sense for our product. And then, then what, what do you do next? So this is where we thought a lot about this idea of like full stack go to market and the the basic idea here is, I, I don't know if any, anybody's read this book, um, Marketing High Technology. Pretty old tech business book, but I, I actually think very interesting, worth a skim. And I think one, one really interesting takeaway uh, from this book was 
William Davidow, he distinguished between devices. So in his case, microprocessors, he worked at Intel in the era of Andy Grove and all of those folks. So he distinguishes between devices and products. And he talks about how, look, a device is invented in a laboratory, like a microprocessor is in the laboratory. A product, on the other hand, is, quote, the totality of what a customer buys. This is something we thought a lot about. Like the, the software is just the device in using Davidow's language. The product is the service, the messaging, the distribution, right? The landing page, the, the onboarding flow, the, the, right, the service, the customer support experience, right? It's like, it's all of those things in one is the product that people are buying. So we thought a lot about, well, for this particular use case, what is the ideal product experience that we want users to have based on what we know about them, based on the competition that we face in this particular segment? How should we think about what this full stack go-to-market looks like, which includes the distribution strategy and the landing page all the way through and like the messaging on the landing page all the way through to the onboarding experience, whether that's like email onboarding or maybe maybe it's a high touch onboarding experience or something else, something else entirely. So we what we ended up doing is chose a few use cases over time and experimented with those pretty deeply, trying to find the different levers that we could pull that would make this use case much, much more successful. Uh, than this other one. And we had a few kind of early on that were, were winners for us and let us let us experiment with a lot more and then really led us to where we are now, where we're no longer focused on specific use cases. We're a little bit, we're like one level up from that now. We can talk about how that evolution happened too, which has been kind of interesting. But it all kind of started because we found these use cases and kind of experimented with them one by one. And the last thing, last of the five here that I wanted to share is this idea of like hybridizing the, the go-to-market, if, if hybridizing is, is a word. The basic idea here is with a product-led growth company, how can you thoughtfully layer in high-touch interactions? Like so thoughtfully layer in sales on top of that product-led uh, growth engine that you've already built. So two kind of motivated questions that we've been asking ourselves a lot and experimenting, we're kind of experimenting with both of these bullets is number one, can high touch intervention help users activate or unlock value faster than what you were able to achieve with whatever products led growth, onboarding flows or whatever else you've created. Maybe there are just some natural limits to activation rates. And if you just put some high-touch intervention on it, you'll actually be able to far exceed anything you can do with product-led growth. And if you're able to experiment, like to, if you're able to design a good experiment, you might be able to prove that it's worth it. It's worth spending the extra money and time that it costs to you know, hire a team of sales folks or SDRs or support folks, like depends on what the, the particular intervention is to help users, you might be able to prove that it's actually it's actually ROI positive for you. This is something, as a quick call out, this is something that my colleague Katya Nelson led a team on, experimenting with just this. Like, can we prove StatSig that this is the case, that we can uh, help users activate, upgrade faster? There's a lot of uh, interesting experimentation you can do there. On the flip side, can you also use high-touch intervention to prevent a user from churning? 
And depending on how large that user is or what the potential LTV of that user is, it might actually be worth, again, high-touch intervention. And again, there's only so much product-led growth can do. The one thing I'll say with this is I think that we've all seen what Superhuman has done with their high-touch onboarding. And I think it's easy to almost overlearn the lesson of Superhuman, right? And just assume that the best way to go to market is gated, you know, like gate your product, do high-touch onboarding, right? Limit the number of users that you even let in the front door, right? Like there's a way to kind of overlearn those lessons because I think ultimately it so depends on your particular product, your pricing, everything else. So I would think of all of these things as experiments. Is there a way that you can experiment with it rather than defaulting to Superhuman's approach? So those are my quick thoughts. Oh, I forgot. I added in these advertisements that I think are really cool that I just wanted to share. So, so we've been talking a lot about use case-led and like feature-led go-to-market, right? Like let's identify a use case and go to market with that use case. As like, in this case for us, it's like Airtable is a investor management system, like what Gil has built. And we're going to go to market with Airtable as that and really focus on features and value props for that specific use case. One thing that I, I, I've thought is really interesting through this process for us is to go back and look at how Apple advertised the Macintosh back in the day. And you think about it, and I think this is particularly relevant if you're building a product that is horizontal and defining a new category, right? Like doesn't easily fit into any existing category. You naturally fall into doing something like, I think what we've talked about here, which is trying to find use cases uh, and going to market with those use cases because you need to hold on to something. You don't have a category to hold on to. And I think it's really cool to see what Maple did with Macintosh because the personal computer was kind of that, right? Like people didn't know what to use a personal computer for. You, truly, you didn't know what to do with it. And it's, it's hard to imagine what that must have been like. But back in the day, you actually had to describe the Macintosh, describe the personal computer in terms of use case. Like, what are the things that you could do? And there's this really cool series of ads. This was like a 20-page spread in a magazine. And this is discussed in this book, Relationship Marketing, which is a, another one that I would recommend. But what's really interesting, I think, about this ad is how focused it is on use case and features, right? It's not telling this, it's not the 1984 ad, like telling this like grand vision of personal computing just yet. It is very specifically saying, here's a specific use case and here's exactly how you can do it with a personal computer. And I also love how the use case here is so like aspirational, right? You're designing a cool sneaker on this personal computer. Like how many personal computer buyers were designing sneakers? Not that many, but they found a use, they found a use case that was aspirational and interesting and kind of like got people excited about what a personal computer might could do for them. So I think this is just a really, I find this to be a really interesting thought experiment to think about. It's like, how did Macintosh think about building their go-to-market strategy when nobody knew what a personal computer was or what it could do? Uh, and there might be some parallels for your products out there as well. Thank you so much, David. That was super interesting. So thank you for sharing your insights with us. So I'm curious, you joined Airtable in 2017. There were only 15 people that worked there back then. What were the early days like? And what would you say uh, about Airtable today would have surprised you back then? Oh, interesting. Um, 
Yeah, I feel like now people know about Airtable. The awareness is a little bit higher and people have a little bit more of a of an understanding of what you could can do with the product. Back then, the awareness was so low that we spent a lot of time trying to figure out, and look, this is still a problem for us, but we spent a lot of time trying to figure out like how to even describe what Airtable is. Like, what is the first three seconds of that conversation when somebody at dinner or a customer asks you, like, wait, what does that comp- what does your company do? What's the elevator pitch? It, it was really challenging in the, in the early days. And I think that's why we became so focused on use cases, because you could pivot quickly to, well, here's a problem that we can solve. And that kind of changed the valence of the conversation and let us talk about the customer and their problems rather than just talking about our product. And I think, look, the, the thing that's like amazing to see today is how many people out there are kind of doing that work for us now. Like the, the Airtable has, we are so lucky that we have so many people who are, who are building amazing things with Airtable every day. And they're so empowered by it. They truly fall in love with it. And in many ways, they kind of do that job because they, they show off all of the things that you can build, build with Airtable. And that, that makes it a lot easier. That makes it a lot easier for us because we can point to what other people you know, have built while we're still trying to figure out the right language to describe exactly uh, what it is that we are. First of all, thank you. That was fascinating. I think what was super interesting, David, was you talked about sort of the limits of, of engagement superhuman style on the one hand and the limits of sort of classic PLG on the other hand. And I think it's interesting to think of that as a spectrum and startups should find the right point on the spectrum as opposed to going to one extreme. I wanted to ask you about the role of templates and how you guys think about that. And are templates, are templates real things? Are templates like that's the product? Are templates just an example? Are they just aspirational? Are they a trick where like I start using a template, ah, screw it, I'll just go build it myself. But now that I've seen how it works, they like, what's the role of templates in these kind of tools, whether it's Wix for websites or whether it's yeah. you guys for, for these kind of tools? Great question. And look, I'll be honest, I don't think we 100% know, it, really. It is that it, because I, I think ultimately templates serve different purposes for different people. So we'll talk to users who never have looked in a template. They're basically like, why would I do that? I want the way that I learn how to use the product is to just dive in and figure it out. And then there are other people who, not only did they start with the template, they deleted all the information in the template and slowly rebuilt it from the template itself. So like they're using, in many ways, using the template itself and everything in between, right? Those two ends of the spectrum. We kind of see all of that. Truthfully, we launched with templates without knowing for sure exactly the impact they would have. And we didn't do some sort of A-B test to see what the impact of templates was on, on activation rates or upgrade rates or anything like that. We saw templates as a good way for us to, a good way for us to show off use cases in a way that users could touch and feel a little bit. And we took a flyer on it. We kind of hoped that it would work. But ultimately, I don't think that we actually know the exact value of templates because it ends up being so unique, unique to the individual. I'll say what I, what I think personally, but this is not backed up by data. This is backed up by anecdote from like talking with users. So to be perfectly clear is I think templates are best when they're aspirational and they kind of show people what you could do. 
and they're all, but they're also simple, you know? So they're simple enough that when you, they're simple enough that when you look at them, you kind of get some of the core features and get how you could use Airtable to do this. And so they're not so complex that you, you can't discern what's actually happening. But they're also a little bit aspirational, right? They're not like some, the boring thing that you do. They're the aspirational thing you wish you could be spending more time on. That's my guess is like, that's the sweet spot. But we haven't been able to find data to like truly point us one way or the other. Does anyone use them? Some people do, but I think the most common, like, my guess is the most common flow. It's kind of hard for us to track this, but my guess is the most common flow is people like open up a template, look at it. They say, huh? And then they go back, open up their own base and start building something. And then maybe they reference a template later. Um, another question from my fit on the horizontal end of the spectrum. And then we have some companies that they're defining new categories and like it could be vertical. We could also be this cool horizontal category defining tool. That's obviously sort of most exciting to me as a VC. And I think it's most exciting to founders. There's a ton of risk in that horizontal value prop, both on the implementation side, where because you don't have the templates, you don't have the use cases figured out, so you don't know what implementation means. There also seems to be a ton of potential disappointment risk. Oh, I didn't realize I couldn't do this with Airtable because this one specific thing that I need to do, I can't do. Yeah. It's, so how do you manage that? How do you manage the sort of the, the user who shows up at Airtable totally gets the vision. It's like, oh, this is great. I'm yeah. going to build this amazing thing. I know there's this one thing that I can't do to get my amazing thing built. And now I'm disappointed. How do you, how do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great question. I think that the vision for the product since before I, like long before I joined, the vision of the product was how do we build this really powerful foundation but then built lots of primitives, lots of like little Lego, like little piece, little Legos, little Lego bricks to extend the foundational product in a ton of different directions. So we, in many ways, we're trying to like have our cake and eat it too. We're going to build the 80% product. And then for the 20% that's specific to your use case, we want to give you the tools so you can build it yourself. And early on, I think that 20% was the API. Like, yeah, it's not built yet, but if you have technical resources, you can kind of hack something together, right? Because we have this API that is auto-generated for every single database that you build. As the product vision has progressed, we built more. Now, a lot of that is coming into the product. We have like apps, blocks on top of Airtable to, again, that it, some of them are, are also horizontal, like charts or visualization tools, but some of them are starting to be very use case specific. You know, like we have a clear bit integration that's like tailor-made for CRM use cases and things like that. So I think stepping back, I think like the way that we tried to, to deal with the risk inherent in going horizontal was by having a plan to having like a product plan to also be able to go deeply vertical as well without suffering from extreme feature bloat where you're trying to shove so many features into the core products that it be, kind of becomes unuseful and the, the horizontal vision of the product doesn't work anymore. The, the goal was to add these vertical features in like this other ecosystem on top of Airtable so we could kind of have both. So that, that's been, that I think this is one of the incredible parts of the product vision of the company is that product vision goes way back to 2014. When they were, when Howie and Emmett and Andrew were like, a, like building V1 
some of the other early engineers, this team of like six, seven people were building V1, that vision has stayed remarkably consistent. And, and that's how they were thinking about we can achieve the horizontal and the vertical at the same time. Because I'll, I'll be honest, like back then, everybody was saying, just go vertical, right? It feels like the obvious choice. And you were seeing other like massive vertical software successes at that time too, or that were being developed at that time. So they were definitely getting a lot of pressure to just like stop at this horizontal game, just go vertical. Well, I wonder if you'd agree with the statement that Airtable is as valuable as it is because it's horizontal, but it's as widely adopted as it is because it's vertical capable. In other words, it, it was vertically yeah. oriented, but it was never perceived by anyone that I know, at least to, to be a vertical tool, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, look, in some ways the early go-to-market was basically how do we how do you go to market vertically with a horizontal product because it's really hard to go to market with a purely horizontal product so finding all of those use cases and building little go-to-market strategies for each of them that was our way of having both at the same time continuing to build the horizontal vision while getting growth out of vertical specific use cases so we want to bring in our first audience questioner. Mirod is a CEO of a company called Radical in London. He's a, I'm a half Israeli living in London. Mirod's a full Israeli living in London. Um, and and Mirod actually just raised his seed round. So congrats. Oh, congrats, Mirod. Thank you. Thanks, David. This was very thought-provoking. These are great frameworks. I was wondering about the question of pricing. So like, how did you guys come up with the pricing? What do you think the pricing how do you price well, essentially, for bottoms-up growth? And, and specifically, do you have to have it be very close to free or, or free? Like, do you have to, like, leave money on the table compared to, like, a top-down approach? That kind of. Yeah, good question. I wasn't around for the pricing at Airtable. And I would also say that there's no... Like our approach isn't like necessarily the right approach either, but we've been thinking a lot about pricing and I think kind of where we've landed in terms of how to, at least one of the ways to think about it is what you want your early adopter users to achieve to kind of kick off some sort of expansion. So for, for us, like with bottoms up growth, the kind of the key factor is that users start inviting other users. Like we need the individual use case to turn into a team use case. We need to see that expansion. The kind of key factor there then is how can we design a pricing mechanism that does it, that greases the wheels towards that end game and doesn't, doesn't throw up any barriers. So I'm not sure if we necessarily did a particularly great job of that early on. But we're experimenting a lot with pricing now. I think, like, as I kind of said in the presentation, I feel like we're probably be experimenting with pricing for the next, like, 10 years, too. I think it'll be something we do all the time because I, I don't think it's ever kind of a solved problem. But the way that I would think about it and, and the way I would talk about it if I went back in time a few years, too, is how do we design pricing to make it as easy as possible for that first user to invite the next user? Because we know that that's so critical for us is to turn to turn Airtable from that individual use case into a team use case. So for us, that looked like freemium. I think that you could make the argument that maybe it would have been better to do, um, to say it's free for teams up to five users, and then we start charging, right? Like that that, that might have made more sense. I'm not 100% sure. But I, I think there's a, depending on what that key moment is for, for you and your company, maybe it makes more sense to charge from day one. 
or to have a long free trial, 30-day free trial, but then force the upgrade at the end. And there, there are companies that are doing bottoms up growth that are extremely successful doing that. Front, the email app, right? Long free trial, got to upgrade at the end. And they're blowing it out of the water. So I, I don't think there's one, one potential approach that, or one approach that for sure works for bottoms up growth. It has to do with what, what matches with your products kind of activation and viral uh, growth loop. Thank you. So we're now going to be joined by Zenia, and she's the CEO of Planable, which is based in um, Bucharest. She also happens to be one of our portfolio company founders. That was a really, really great uh, presentation, uh, really good ideas. I particularly love the system that you built with Intercom and Zapier and Slack. That's oh, gem. Yeah, and I already have a bunch of other ideas how to use it for ourselves. Okay. But I want to go back to that use case discovery, and I have a, a few specific questions around that. I'm curious if you were giving any type of incentives to users back then to talk to you guys and also what was the follow-up afterwards with those users? Were you going back to them in terms of they were asking for something specific, if they had a specific request in terms of their use case, if you were building it up, did you have a yeah. track all of those users and go back to them and follow up based on what you discussed with them? Yeah, good questions. Um, okay, so incentives, it, de- it depended. Early on, we didn't offer any incentives. The, early on, the goal was basically as quickly as possible after somebody signed up, we would offer our free help. And we didn't offer incentives to to let us help you. We kind of uh, hoped that the help was, was good good enough. Yeah. Um, so I think we we ended up offering incentives sometimes Early on, we were only focusing on new users that were signing up. Later on, we started targeting existing users within specific industries uh, or with specific titles or functional roles because we wanted to like investigate construction or something. So we're, we spent you know two weeks sprint. Let's just talk to as many people in construction as we can. Then we would you know create a list in Intercom based on that the Clearbit roles. Right, um, and then we might offer an incentive because they were existing user, and it was a a somewhat random request, right? Since we were outbounding to them, so then we we would offer some incentives. And then your second question was on like once what was the structure of the engagement? So the, that's a great question. The the way that we thought about it, especially for the users who were onboarding, um, so who were brand new users. So we've really thought about it in terms of just how do we make this user most successful? So we tried to not limit ourselves to only one touch or just a call and then an email and then a a check-in a week later. We tried to not limit ourselves. And instead, we tried to like let let the user kind of guide the, the process a little bit so that we could, and the goal really was we, we wanted to learn what made the experience successful. As, as well. This was us trying to be anthropologists as much as we could. I think that, look, that can go wrong, right? Like users could take advantage of you and you could end up just kind of being a support person for somebody for months. So there's limits to all of this. So you want to be thoughtful about it. But we really tried to be, to let our guiding principle be, how do we just make this user most successful? And then once that's achieved, then we can look back and see what we've learned from it. And we we kept track of all of it in an Airtable base. So every, like, that Zap updated, added a record in Airtable with that user's name and email. 
And then if they responded to our email and wanted to set up a call, we would just keep track of all of those notes in that Airtable base. And over time, we add a lot of additional fields too. And as new pieces of metadata kind of came up from conversations and started to become more important. So maybe it started with just industry and role, but over time we started adding a bunch of other different factors that we determined to be useful. Some obvious ones like companies, like employee count and things like that, but also a lot of unique things specific to their usage of Airtable in particular. Are they using it in for this type of workflow or that type of workflow? What is the schema design? Like all of this very specific for Airtable stuff that we started thinking a lot about. Gotcha. That's that's very helpful. Thanks a lot, David. Yeah, of course. Cool. So uh, next question is from Timer Abdel, who is a London-based founder of a company called Causal App. It's also in this kind of next generation of Microsoft Office. Hey, David, thanks so much for the talk. My question was around the sort of identifying use cases and using them to go to market. Could you give like a concrete example of like one of the early go-to-market use cases and like specifically how you guys uh, tried to sort of grow within that? Like you can buy ads, is it like content? Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear a bit about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I didn't get into too many specifics, um, but happy to, yeah, happy to uh, add a little bit of nuance now. There were kind of some classic early ones that we kind of happened upon. And the one consistent theme across all of them is we didn't come up with that. Like almost to a use case, it was a user who started using Airtable to do this thing. And we heard about it because we did an onboarding session with them or they reached out to support or whatever. We heard about it, realized that Airtable was actually really good for this. And then that kicked off the process. Like, oh, let's go find more people who are using Airtable for this. Like, can we validate this further? And, and so on. Some early examples are things like a lot of like product related use cases, product road mapping, product management, a lot of user research. So kind of adjacent to product market, like user research use cases and oh, some content related use cases too. So like content marketing management, content calendar, things like that as well. Basically, I mean, if you just go look at our, like, if you look at our templates and you look at like the featured templates, those early ones, those were kind of like the, some of the early use cases that were really resonating with folks back in the day. And the way that we thought about go-to-market was for each of these use cases, we would think about who are these people who are using Airtable as a product roadmap, let's say, and where do they hang out online? How can we find them? So we've really tried to, instead of thinking of ourselves as being Airtable employees, we were thinking of ourselves as being, I don't know, a product roadmap like Jira employees, or what is that other one? Prod plan or road monk. I think that might be one too. But think like, what if we had a product that was a product roadmap? How would we go to market? And would content marketing be a big piece of it or not? Would paid search, would Facebook ads? Let's go down the line of all of the different potential uh, leverage points that we have, potential tactics that we have. And let's think about, does it make sense for this particular group of people that we're trying to target? And then let's experiment across all of them. So that's what we did for all of these different use cases. We just kind of thought about What's the menu of tactics that we have? And let's experiment across all of them. Well, that's really helpful. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Cool. Now we're going to be joined by Arne, who does business development at Qualable, um, which is based in Berlin, their startup, which allows anyone to use AI for automation. So 
I wanted to get back to the sign-up process again. You, you already answered uh, some questions on that, uh, but I find this really interesting. And actually, we're building basically the same thing. One thing I wanted to ask you is whether you are using like any additional CRM system at the moment, or if it is purely based on Airtable and Intercom still. Right now, we are doing this process anymore. I'm saying this whole like use case identification, go to market whole thing made a ton of sense a few years ago, and we've kind of evolved past it a little bit now. So we aren't using it anymore. At the time, though, it was all it was all the ex exactly those tools. So you know now we use Salesforce as our CRM, but we're doing entirely different stuff with it. If I were to spin up this type of uh, process again, I would use exactly the same tools. Okay. And then related questions to that, we also experimented with Clearbit and we were thinking about personalizing this whole interaction with users and, and kind of automating this, but then we stepped away because we just figured some of the information was just rubbish. I, I guess you're still using Clearbit in order to enrich uh, your leads in Salesforce. Yes. That's something like, and, and I'm guessing that sometimes when, for instance, they're using Gmail uh, for the signup, you also don't get the most current position in. Is that just something that you sacrifice in order to get like, I don't know, 90, 95% right? Or is there, are you still kind of watching this consciously and, and doing double checks of some sort? I think we ended up limiting it actually to only like non-free domains. So we only, we would only do calls like in this whole onboarding, high touch onboarding approach with users who had company domains. And Clearbit's data for company domains is pretty, pretty good. So that is kind of how we got around the challenge. Because I definitely agree that Clearbit data for, for Gmail or other free domains just isn't as good. It's hard to trust. So yeah, we just focused on company domains only. Next question is from Raphael Goldstein, CEO of WeWeb in Paris. Hey. Thanks for having me. Hey, David. Uh, thank you so much for your, for your talk. Super interesting. I wanted to talk about this system as well, because like, I find it very interesting. We are pretty early and you're still kind of iterating to find the product market fit basically. And I think it's a pretty good system to, to get to it. So my question was based on what criteria did you qualify who is an interesting user and how did you make this evolve? Like based on which KPIs basically? Yeah. So early on, it was pretty lightweight. I think early on the main targeting was company domain and it might have been greater than 100 users or greater than 250 by not users uh, employee count at the company yeah. i think that might have been it to start and then over time we started focusing more on specific industries it evolved where it wasn't one stream of users coming in from intercom we had like different segments based on industry classifications so it got a little bit more complicated because one person on the team was focused on understanding people who worked in construction, like I said before, and they were and a few other industries and they were really focused on those. Then your other question was around like KPIs for how it evolved over time. So with that, we focused, there was, there were a few things. One is we did some like NPS type surveys with users and tried to map some sort of, this, this is actually, there is a I'm saying that superhuman's approach doesn't always make sense, but there's the article in, I think it's in the first red review about their like product market fit approach yep. is, is pretty interesting. And we ended up doing something somewhat similar. 
And Superhuman actually used Airtable for part of that. So there's a... Awesome. You can search for product market fit, I think, in the templates gallery. And there's a template that kind of, that you can build off of or just use for inspiration. Thinking about Gil and my uh, previous conversation. But so there, there's a version of that, which is like quasi NPS, which we, we would do with users. to trying to understand if like these were really, did, were they really like active? Do they, did they, they need Airtable or could yeah. they just some alternatives? And then we, we kind of uh, combine that with that framework for thinking about a use case and it's like desirability. Like, is this a good use case for Airtable overall? Like, do they like it? And do, do we want to spend resources to go after it? Awesome. Pretty good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. David, thank you so much. We're just about at the hard stop. So I'll let you go without any further ado. Thank you so much for making the time. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again. Thanks.